Good morning from Cali, Colombia. Today is Friday, the 19th of June, 2020, and this is Global Perspectives. The current pandemic and its economic and social crises have led us to a point where nearly all news are related to COVID-19. Although these crises are of major relevance, in today's podcast, I want to focus on a topic that is often underlooked in public discussions. I have invited the early child development expert, Leonardo Janes, to talk about education policies, child development and education trends in the Latin American region. Mr. Janes has worked as a lecturer in different Venezuelan universities, he was consultant to UNICEF, and he was the national director of early child education in Venezuela. Currently, he works as the senior representative for Latin America in the Bernard Friendlier Foundation. Thank you, Leonardo, for being here. Could you tell us a bit more about the work you do in the Bernard Friendlier Foundation? The position, the representative of a country, is responsible for uh, setting, designing the strategy of how we are going to invest in, in specific countries to, um, to scale policies and programs that improve the life of very young children, particularly those in situations of vulnerability. That's our role. So we do strategizing, we connect, we build partnership, we uh, grant uh, initiatives that are promising and can be scaled, and particularly we try to, to encourage the private sector and the civil society, the organized civil society, to demand service. And we provide support, technical support, networking uh, to the government to, that are the ones with the possibility to go to scale, to reach those that are difficult to reach. All right. And according to what, what I've seen a bit in your CV, in your in your uh, general description, you focused in early child development, right? So uh, my question for you would be, why did you decide to um, to start a career to develop your career in early child development? And how can you how are you uh, applying the things you learned in your current position in the foundation? Usually, it's very difficult to know exactly where you start. It's like trying to, to know where a river starts, because you have so many uh, affluence that you don't know exactly what. But I can tell you that, that for me, there were experiences in my life that marked my vocation for early childhood. I have to say that the first one, I was also a child. And um, while my, uh, I was in a, in a, a family um, with a single mother, were six siblings, all one year apart of each other. We live in a very small apartment of 46 meters. So I remember that we used to be uh, taken care of by a black lady that also had their own children. So if we were poor, they were even poorer, okay? And I remember that day because I was like four or five, and I remember that one day she was crying and hitting her head, banging her, her head against the wall. And was late, my mother was coming late because she has to commute. Like uh, imagine like one hour and a half or two hours from her job back. And very often she was asked to stay in her office. So she was really desperate. And for me, that was really funny 
is I, I, it's like sea animation. Why she was doing that? It was kind of funny. She was hitting her head against the wall. And then I, years after, I asked my mother, I was a teenager, and she told me, no, the problem is that she also had children. And she had one child in high school, and the child had been raped at the high school, taken to emergency to a hospital, and she couldn't go to see her daughter because she was taking care of us. So for me, that experience was very influencing in my life. But that's only one thing that I can, I can remember and why I decided to go to the most vulnerable. For early childhood, I also had different experiences. I used to go to school. I have a very young uh, brother, younger than me. I love to teach him everything I learned at school. Teaching how to read, how to solve. He was all the time more advanced than his peer because I took the time to be his teacher. I was a good student in, uh, during uh, my primary years. I was always in the top. I was also very shy. So I always in the top, but at home, I was a teacher. So I guess that was the, the beginning. In Canada, I was more in contact with the work of Piaget, and of course, after Vygotsky, uh, and many other people, international researchers that have some very concrete uh, uh, activities and theory about how to work on that. I was fascinated by social constructivism how you build knowledge in society with others. When you, are, when you talk to others and we, you both build concepts, build ideas about an object. And I believe I became a, a convinced person, conversed into that uh, approach. I'm not a fanatic. So when I was uh, later on, I was the director of national director of early childhood education in Venezuela. I didn't impose that to everyone, but I tried to bring the concept of uh, uh, active learning of the child, uh, the child as an active learner, uh, the social opportunity to learn, and uh, gave me a lot to do. I started programs like Teacher at Home that is similar to what now in Colombia they want to do with families approach for the coronavirus, is that we, particularly for immigrants, and for the more vulnerable, vulnerable population, is that we, I asked teachers that didn't have enough uh, children to pass the children to others to complete the code, and they would go visiting homes and teaching caretakers how to do best. I remember I, I got a lot of inspiration in the Hogares Comunitarios of Colombia, I took some ideas from there. I took some ideas from Peru, from Nigeria. So I went to different countries to have these ideas. I started that. The only thing for me, the main problem is that is that language was not easy, and that's why I went to Canada to study about acquis language acquisition. I specialized in that. So you can imagine that when Chavez won the elections in Venezuela, I had to leave the ministry. I, I'm not a politician. It's just in Venezuela, as in many of our countries, when you change the head of a ministry, everyone has to leave. For me, it was okay to leave because I was there only for four years. I was uh, before as a professor of the university, Catholic University. I didn't need to be there. But when I left, UNICEF hired me to do some work in, uh, with indigenous in, the, in Wayu and Anu in Guajira. 
And uh, this foundation hired me for a project in Chocó, in Colombia, in Puno, Peru, in Honduras, in India, Philippines, in Mozambique, Kenya, Netherlands, and Portugal, and Israel. So somehow I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time with the right skill and knowledge to come to a foundation that is just committed to that. All right. Um, I would like to ask you a bit more now on how do you see the panorama for education in Latin America over the next few years. So as far as I've gotten, your your focus is really on early child development, especially uh, in Latin America. So my question to you would be, um, how do you see the, the future of early child development in Latin America and generally the future of education in Latin America, perhaps taking into account the, the impact, the possible impact that the coronavirus can have but generally the, the trend in education in Latin America? I could say that in La Latin America, probably is one of the, of the few regions, or, or probably, probably the most advanced region for the resources in uh, having a consensus about early childhood. When you see plans and programs, curricula of most of our countries in the region, we are more than like 20 countries or more if we count the Caribbean, uh, the curriculum in Latin America are very uh, vanguardist. Uh, I usually refer to IO2 in Colombia because for me, this is a very high standard, high benchmark for what you can do for the childhood. But I can find the same level of quality in almost every country. The only problem is that we usually face a a challenge. There are many challenges, but when I try to figure out the one that for me is at the core of the problem, for me is the relay between the planners and the implementers. So if you see in our countries, you see Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, wherever you go, you see in the ministries, in the top, people that have that had the chance to go abroad, have some masters, PhDs, studies, okay? They have seen other things and they come to Latin America and they try to bring this innovation, these ideas to Latin America. But the main problem is that at this planning level, we seem to be in the first world. And then we see teachers doing whatever they, they can. Particularly the teachers of early childhood tend to be very well educated, are resourceful, they are innovators, they bring their husbands wives, children to work in the project. So they are not just a teacher. They really are enthusiastic activists, mostly. And after special education, the highest profile of professionals in education are the preschool education. After special education. And ironically, math and language are close to the bottom. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, with few amazing exceptions, but we are not doing well on those two basic things. Okay, so in uh, in uh, preschool in preschool education, if you, the supervisor for me is the weakest part, the weakest link, because the supervisor very often get there because political activism, and not necessarily on merits with good exceptions. That's why when you see in the private sector or NGOs, they do really well. You see, fe alegría. They do a great job, usually. If you see IO2, they do a great job. When you go to the private, because in the private sector or in the non-governmental 
eh, iniciáticos, sea alegría y subsidized by government, that is managed by, by the church. Okay? Yeah. What they have, maybe they, they don't have to be the best in everything, but they are good. That the supervisor brings to the teacher what the planners are saying and brings to the planner what the teacher are doing. So that means you have a connection in the chain, let's say the change of the, of the process. You see the, each part in the public sector, sadly, with a few, few exceptions, uh, mostly the supervisor is not necessarily, doesn't have the skills or knowledge always or the motivation to, to work as a relay between the planner and the implementer. So for me, that's a big problem. What I see, uh, what I see with the coronavirus, coronavirus is for me, you can see both ways. We know the problem. Now we're going to have more poor people than we had before because the coronavirus makes poverty. Okay, increase the disparity. But if governments are concerned about reducing, ameliorating the situation, trying to compensate, it's also a great opportunity to do things. From Chile to Mexico, our countries are innovators. You can see programs like, for me, Hogares Comunitario, or De Cero a Siempre, as a national strategy. But you can see programs in Chile, in Peru, in Ecuador, in Brazil, that are so innovative that they could, uh, um, how to say, cover the, the, the gap that we have in education. For instance, I, once I visited Acre in Brazil, in the rural areas, more children don't have access to preschool education because they, feel they live so far. They are so scattered in the region. So, uh, and the government of Brazil at the time, the Ministry of Education didn't accept that preschool education can be delivered outside the buildings, the preschool centers. Okay, they couldn't be recognized, had to be in buildings. The same happened to me in Venezuela for being the unit, the budgetary unit uh, that I could use was the, with the building. If I have a center with the one director of teachers, I wanted to move that to change from the building to the director. I wanted the director, the manager of the process to be my budgetary unit. Why? Because if instead of focusing on a building, I focus on a population, a territory, I have one director to do that. She cannot be happy only with the children that she can put inside the building. She had to think about the children that couldn't make it, that are outside. And she had to plan strategies to go and reach them, to visit them. That's why you have this project, El Maestro en Casa, at one moment, with the World Bank and the Bernard Fanlier Foundation, try to make it a national program. And we did it. Latin America is full of these uh, experiences. In Mexico, in uh, Monterrey, there is an amazing program called SENDI. Uh, and the SENDI is a luxury preschool that is public. They have Olymp semi-Olympic uh, swim pool. They have computers for language, computers for programming. They have everything you want. And they have medical nutrition. They, they, for me, they have two weak things. First, to organize it, because that was created by a doctor, a politician that was a doctor. So she, he was germophobic. In this time of, of, of COVID, he must be in the, in the crest of the way. <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> but at that time, it was too exaggerated. 
Okay. At the same time, by having these luxury centers, that means they have a huge queue list, waiting list for children to enter in the center. So they evaluated the program and they decided to create a program that was outside. So the parents of those children that couldn't make it, they come twice a week to the center and they receive coaching for one hour and a half. Things they can do at home, things they can. So they were guides. They guided the parents, the caretakers. They went home and then they had to come twice a week. When they evaluated these children, to, to their surprise, children in the external program did better. Of course, in motricity, I can understand. Even though they had gene in the school, school was, you know, teachers oriented. So they have everything physically, but the, the, the regime inside was very top down. When children went to, to home, they had fights the whole day, street, uh, and very precarious street. So they had to be really good at motricity. And the only thing they were good at was language. They did better at language. That means that probably stay at home the whole day, probably silent, so the teachers don't have a headache was no better for the language than being at home, talking every day with the neighbors, with the people, with the parents, with whoever. And besides, with the guidance of the school, so they had to do some reading, some storytelling, some singing. So they had the best, the best of both worlds. So for me, that was a, a good surprise because it was a confirmation that we can innovate. Now, what happened now with the coronavirus? We might be really sad because education might not be back the way they used to be. Or we do it by force and we take the consequences of spreading a, a, a fatal virus, that could be. But what I see in most countries is that now they are coming back to those innovations that at one time were crazy things and try to see how can we organize this way and use it. So. Some of the attempts that I think interesting, but I'm not quite sure they're going to work, is by using laptop. You deliver orientations via the laptop. The problem with the laptop is not everyone has a laptop. Uh, sometimes you have the laptop of the family. And so, yes. for instance, yes. I have a colleague in Lima, and they have the means, but they have only her laptop and her husband's laptop. They are both working the whole day when the children need to do school homework, they had to stop working. Okay, so not always easy, and they can, they have the means. Imagine in our crowded uh, slum, urban slums, favelas, where you have little space and too many people, little public space even, how can we manage that? So I think that this is an opportunity, you can still, I, I, I'm not against using technology, I think we have to, have to use it. But I, we, I think we also have to be more innovative in the way we approach families. We had to find a way to bring these people to public space and how to make public space um, opportunities for learning. I can give some examples at different levels, not necessarily only early childhood. But for instance, if you walk in Cochabamba around the Science Association, it's kind of a museum for children. Okay, inspiring science. Okay, and when you walk, you go on the sidewalk. They put in the in the entrance of the of this kind of museum. 
they say this is a sum. Okay, and then you walk so many steps, so many meters, and you find Mercury. If you continue, you find Venus, and then Earth, and then every planet. And it's amazing, of course, you, first you are uh, intrigued because of the distance. You, you couldn't imagine that the solar system could be so huge when you see uh, how far the, the, the outer planets are. So it's amazing. But by doing this, you give a motive to parents and children to talk about something that can be more interesting as, as a structural learning. Imagine that you could do the same with a, a, a metro, with the, the transportation, public transportation. Yeah. I saw in Caracas, I was in Bogota two years ago, I visited Caracas for oh, over the weekend. I was working in Bogota, but I went to Caracas for over the weekend to see a stair that uh, an architect did in a slum place like, like Ciudad Bolívar. Yeah. You have this huge uh, hill, and they wanted to improve the stairs because they were 270 steps from bottom to top. That was some a chaos, uh, poverty, everything closed with fences everywhere, iron. Uh, women had to go home before six because then they can be assaulted by criminals. And the in front space was a big wall, so they couldn't enter in the better of um, uh, urbanization. So they were trapped there, okay? They were trapped there. And every step they put, after they improve it, they put in every step a phrase of a story. Because Venezuela is torn apart by this political stalemate between government and opposition, so it's impossible to govern the country. Families are divided between those who like the government, those who hate the government. Also, so the story goes about a child that says that my father loves blue and my mother loves red. And then he described the good things of blue, the good things of red. And at one point, she decides that she likes violet because violet has some things of red, some things of blue. Yes. So it was very, very appropriate, the story. Okay, and uh, why not? I can imagine, I saw so many women going up with the children and the stories were there. So they can, of course, it's very tiresome. I went up all the stairs and it's really hard. <laughs> and, and my sport is to climb mountains. So imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> Used to be, not anymore. But so imagine. So how could it be for a mother with the back and the child? Like, so I think that the, the some of the innovative solutions is that um, initial education, education for in, in general, for young children, for primary education, for secondary, had to permeate the community, had to permeate the physical space. I love to see the science, the science center in Medellin. Amazing, amazing thing. It's, it's, it's so lovely to be there. I think cities have to start thinking that education has to spread, has to permeate society and use other spaces and that teachers, I don't ask teachers to be everything because some, sometimes when I was in education, they say a teacher had to be an, an anthropologist, a doctor, no, no, that's too much. A teacher has to be a good teacher. And a good teacher is not the person that knows everything. It's a person that knows how to learn, how to guide someone to find information to learn had to create opportunities for learning. But many other people in the city had to be part of their alliance. They had to work with the urban planners. 
they had to work with the doctors, with the health provision. They had to go so how to make easy for children to go. The project of uh, Cresco con mi barrio in Bogotá, in Ciudad Bolívar, is showing how when you integrate services for children um, and recreational places, you improve the life of people. They get to know each other and you reduce violence because they know each other. So I don't know, okay, again, very long, but I, I see an opportunity uh, beyond the danger of this crisis, beyond the threat, there's some opportunities. We had to learn to use crisis as the old, old Chinese did. It's a danger, it's a threat, but also it's an opportunity. We should focus on the opportunity. That was Leonardo Janes from the Bernard Van Leer Foundation. If you're listening to this podcast and you would like to comment on it, email me at francisco.jose.lopez at outlook.com. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>